0: Robert Jervis passed away on December 9th at the age of 81. He was one of the major figures of international relations scholarship in the history of the field of the study of international relations. In October 2015, Robert Jervis sat down with me for a long interview about his life and career. He discussed how his upbringing shaped his worldview from a young age, and I kid you not, in the interview, he traces the origin of his most famous work, Perception and Misperception in International Politics, to an event when he was six years old. Robert Jervis was incredibly generous with his time. It was a long and thoughtful conversation about both his personal history and the origins of some of the big ideas that he brought into this world. This episode was behind a paywall. I've been doing this podcast since 2013, and the first couple hundred episodes are these kinds of long-form interviews with people who have led interesting lives and careers in foreign policy. Those are now available only to premium subscribers, but I've brought this out from behind the paywall on patreon.com slash global dispatches today because, well, I know that his work impacted the lives of many people who congregate around this podcast. It was a great interview. Here is the late Robert Jervis from 2015. My guest today,
1: Robert Jervis, is on every international relations syllabus. He's probably best known for his book Perception and Misperception in International Politics, which was a groundbreaking work that applied principles of cognitive psychology to international relations. And he tells me he can trace the origin of that book to a specific moment of his childhood.
2: Literally, when I was, oh, six or seven, I I remember asking my parents what The U.S. should do in response to either the Soviets, probably the Yugoslavs, shooting down American planes in the Adriatic. How do you respond in these situations, and when will a forceful response? When will that induce better behavior on the other? When will it reduce the level of conflict by making clear to the other side that? Belligerence will be met with counter belligerence.
1: In addition to perception and misperception, we discuss at length the origins of Jervis's first book, The Logic of Images in International Relations, which is also part of the IR theory canon. Jervis also discusses the influence of his family growing up in New York in a highly political environment, how the Vietnam War reduced his own hawkish inclinations, and he discusses some recently declassified work he's done with the CIA to help them figure out why they got some big questions wrong. But we kick off talking about time travel, because, well, you'll see. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. As always, you can hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg, or send me an email via globaldispatchespodcast.com if you have suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover. And do check out globaldispatchespodcast.com. We have a very robust archive of conversations like the one you're about to hear with foreign policy thought leaders and luminaries. And now here is my conversation with Robert Jervis. Okay, so I was trying to think of how to start this this interview, and there's this totally ridiculous item that was just published, like, moments ago uh, on the Twitter feed of the New York Times magazine, and I, I wanted to ask you a- about it and, and see if it has any, you know, broader applications to international relations theory. Okay, so, so here it is, and, and forgive me, I think this is totally idiotic, yeah. but it's, it's uh, the talk of, of Twitter right now. So, New York Times magazine asked its readers if they could go back in time and kill, murder, baby Hitler, <laughs> would they do it? 30% said no, 28% said not sure, 42% said yes. H- how do you stand on this question?
2: I mean, I would register yes. Uh, the objections, of course, are of two types. One is purely moral, that killing is simply immoral, and we shouldn't do it as a country or we shouldn't do it as individuals. IR theory doesn't have much to say about that. Some of my colleagues, like Mike Doyle, who work on normative as well as empirical questions might, but I think we go with our gut instincts. We're not going to kill Hitler. We're not going to kill anyone. a reasonable position, but not one I take. The more interesting objection is, uh, you know, be careful what you wish for. That is, do we really know what would happen if Hitler hadn't been born? Uh, Usually the the, that line of argument goes something worse could have happened, and here I think the rebuttal to that reply is is really pretty devastating. That is, even for the most imaginative of us, uh, it's hard to think of much worse than World War II, with not only the Holocaust and the but the international dimensions and and what it led to. It does raise the point that counterfactual history first is very difficult, and it is legitimate because it uh, both taps into the you know our retrospective mm-hmm. analyses of policies, and it also taps into our views about causal relations mm-hmm. and
1: but wouldn't on this on this specific question of killing baby Hitler I mean wouldn't traditional IR theory um, reject the idea that any individual yeah. uh, has just tremendous sway over the order of the world or whether or not countries go to war?
2: Yeah very good point. I mean tradi- there are a lot of traditional IR theories and the ones that are largely outside in purely structural and situational Uh, would reject that and a lot reject the argument that killing Hitler matters. And also a lot of the trends in the general intellectual environment in political science, history, other fields in the last 30, even 40 years run against the so-called great man theory. Mm -hmm. Uh, But this is a pretty first I think those trends have gone much too far. I think individuals do matter. And they give an, an advertisement, I had an, an article in uh, uh, str- uh, security studies. Great about, journal. Yeah, about two years ago on why, when and why leaders matter and how we would know. And I think they often do matter, even in less extreme cases. Here, even a structuralist, you know, might argue that Hitler is just so important and so unusual that it really would matter. Structuralists would argue, and I would tend to agree, that uh, no matter what happened, Germany was going to be revisionist after World War One and after the Treaty of uh, Versailles really uh, crippled its privileges, but not its power. When Germany regained its power, it was wanted, It would rega- seek to regain a larger place in the world. I think that's true. And this would lead to conflict. That's true. Doesn't mean it would lead to World War II uh, or the enormous mass murders. So I think uh, this is a hard case for a pure... Right.
1: So, so while we're on the subject of, of time travel, I'll take this question uh, a, a little bit further. So, you're you're famous uh, for among other things analyzing the implications of of what's called spiral theory, or sometimes yeah. uh, the security dilemma, which is basically this idea that states take actions to maximize their own security, but in so doing, might through for unforeseen reasons cause or or create the outbreak of war because other states uh, see those actions which the state a believes to be defensive as offensive and, and somehow aggressive. Um, how might time travel affect uh, spiral theory in, in, in this case and, and what implications might that have?
2: Well, I don't think it affects the theory. It certainly affects the, the applications. If we went back to the mid 1930s, And we see, I believe this is debatable, but I believe we see many of the decision makers in Britain, especially Neville Chamberlain, but a great many others, believing the spiral theory. That is uh, partly uh, growing out of their interpretation of 1914, believing that conflict with Germany is avoidable and that a hard line or what we now call a containment policy would be more likely to increase Uh, disagreements and disputes and conflict with Germany, and that this was unnecessary, and that therefore a policy of appeasement should be followed. And as you may know, and some listeners will know, in the 1930s, the term appeasement was a favorable term. It was entirely non-pejorative. It referred to making a situation more uh, peaceful, conciliating. Well, in retrospect, I think we'd say, hey, right theory, wrong application. It just does not Mm -hmm. describe Hitler or the the Nazi regime. And if you were following the wrong theory, you're likely to get the wrong prescription. And in fact, you had to do something much more belligerent than that. So when you know, in a way, now that we know the answer, Mm because there's still disputes about Hitler and about Chamberlain, but you know the answer. You can then go back and do a lot better when you take the test.
1: Um, so, so we'll, we'll, we'll um, kind of, uh, move away from theoretical time travel and, 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 talk about your own history, your own background. Um, you know, as I mentioned, you're, you know, you're someone on every IR theory syllabus. Uh, so I'd love to learn a little bit more. So I would imagine a lot of my audience probably know you or at least familiar with some of your theories, but I'd love to kind of trace where you're from and, and, you know, how you became to be, you know, the, the IR theorist that, that, uh, everyone knows. So where, where are you from?
2: Yeah, well, uh, let me go back to the security dilemma. And you know that's drawn from Chapter 3 of Perception Misperception, where I contrast the spiral model versus deterrence. And that question of uh, what will be the possible effects of a hard line, threats of force, even use of force, when are they necessary and when will they make things worse? That's both a question that continues to preoccupy me. I look at American policy toward Russia, both Ukraine and Syria, and ask that question. Uh, and it's the question the way I started with. I mean, literally when I was, oh, six or seven, I, I remember asking my parents what the U.S. should do in response to either the Soviets or the Yugoslavs shooting down American planes in the Adriatic. Of course, they claimed those planes were on spy missions and being self-righteous and loyal American seven or eight-year-old. I thought we would never be spying on other countries that way. Of course, they were spy planes. But that question of uh, yeah you know, how do you respond in these situations and when will it a forceful response when will that induce better behavior on the other when will it reduce the level of conflict by making clear to the other side that belligerence will be met with counter belligerence and so what when, did well what
1: did your parents say Uh, as I remember, they said, they're there, Bob.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Well, they were very political. So, you know, they were, they were willing to indulge this, but they didn't have the answer. What, what sort of business were they in? Where where in the country were you born? Yes, and this does matter for the background. I was born in 1950 in New York City, where I lived until I went to college and then moved back when I was age 40. Anyway, New York then is now is a very political city. My parents were not engaged in politics professionally. My mother was a homemaker and a very skilled potter, uh, and my father was a lawyer. But they were both typical liberal New York Jews, a a religious Jews. But it matters because that whole milieu of the New York culturally, but not religiously Jewish community was very politically aware, very focused on both domestic and internationally and international politics, did their yeah. parents
1: uh, settle in like the Lower East Side or, or in Brooklyn, like via Ellis Island?
2: Uh, no, they're,
1: they were there longer than that. So
2: we were, I'm happy to say, on the Upper East Side. Ah, uh,
1: okay. By then you had made the, the trek <laughs> uptown. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So that's pretty imp- That's I mean, that's uh, sort of atypical of, of uh, many, I think, Jews of your generation, right? Like, that that it wasn't your parents, but maybe your grandparents. That's or even right. It, grandparents. Was
2: my, it was my grandparents, okay. especially my grandfather, who was a major New York builder. Um, but it was, you know, a hothouse political environment. A lot of my parents' friends, again, were not in politics in the formal sense, but everyone would be talking about what was in the newspapers, and yeah, you know, the question of the emerging Cold War, uh, and of course, domestically, uh, the rise of uh, McCarthyism. Uh, these were very, you know, a lot, these were. Very close to the bone for what I was uh, interested in. I mean, w- what all my parents' friends were in the high school, I was, the grade school and then high school I went, this was a subject of constant conversations. So it, this was, uh, you know, I was, I was a product of that environment.
1: Um, and so how did you start pursuing these these ideas this environment uh sort of intellectually like what what outlets do you have early on when you went to uh university uh or even on high school
2: well in high school there was uh and even before you know this was just what we would talk about i and it was fifth or sixth grade uh, about five of us put out was in a mimeographed newspaper, you know, this would predate Xerox, let alone electronic media, uh, a current events newsletter. And I remember f- uh, we were discussing the purge trials in uh, Eastern Europe. Oops, I should know the year what, 48, 49, 50. 49, mm-hmm and uh one of my friends was drawing the cartoons for the slansky trial and i was writing up the analysis and in my well, this was in grade school this was not considered uh uh unusual uh something that marked you out as more nerdish than anyone else this everyone
1: was, was writing manifestos back in the uh, early 1960s anyway, go, right? This
2: was, this was the
1: <laughs> 50s. 50s. Ev-
2: everyone in, in the schools, a private school, the ethical culture schools. Oh, are yeah, in, that's
1: a well-known one. And,
2: yeah, this is what this and the baseball season. <clears throat> this is what everyone was interested in. Uh, so <clears throat> you didn't have to be at all abnormal. To absorb a lot of this. And Did
1: any of yeah. your um, friends from that area, from grade school, go on to become kind of well known public intellectuals?
2: Uh, no, they all, I think, kept up political interests, but I was the only one to say to go on getting a PhD in political science. A lot of that was going to college, which was Oberlin College, which was very much like. The culture schools, that is, I'm left liberal, no more socialists than Republicans, very much attuned domestically to first McCarthyism then the civil rights movement, civil issues of civil liberties, and of course, the issues of the Cold War. And I was in the, my freshman, sophomore year, very interested in the missile gap. And then I was much more of a hawk. And there was a three-part story in the New York Times about the missile gap with a lot of information. And I sort of wrote up a paper on my own about it. And those interests partly built on themselves. So you had a
1: hawkish take on the missile gap. Yes. Okay. Yes.
2: I did change, but my political interest didn't change. But partly in writing perception and misperception, and partly because of Vietnam, and partly because of... My general reading in history, I became much more dovish when I started. Perception and misperception, and particularly that chapter three, I started out as a defender of deterrence theory. I I still believe deterrence theory quite often is appropriate. I am not. I don't believe in any way it is totally misplaced. But uh, as both things got as. The Vietnam heated up, which I thought was a mistake, and as I read more of historical cases, I became convinced that states often did overreact, often did perceive a good deal more hostility from others than was there, and did often, not always, but often overlook possibilities for conciliation. So I moved to be much more amenable to you know, dovish spiral model analysis of situations, but I do think each situation is is different.
1: That's interesting. Are there other um, IR theorists or, or IR intellectuals who had that kind of similar shift as you? I mean, I, you know, that went from kind of yeah. being a little more hawkish and, and a little more, you know, cold warriors to having the experience of Vietnam fundamentally change uh, how they think the world is ordered?
2: Well, I think Vietnam is extraordinarily important. I'm going to teach it the next two weeks in my undergraduate seminar. It was important to me, but not seminal, because I already was deeply interested in politics. And in fact, uh, they in the spring of 63, uh, for Chalmers Johnson's course on revolutions, I would written a paper on what we then called guerrilla warfare, you know, wars of national liberation, insurgency, what have you. And from writing that paper, I became convinced uh, we could not win a war in Vietnam, at least at reasonable cost. Uh, but for a lot of people a little younger than I was and who were much less political, Vietnam was their first really introduction to issues like this, and many of them, although not all, but many were strongly against the war. And so they it really shaped them in a very strongly dovish manner in a very strong. I don't want to say anti-American as well, but very critical of American
1: So So, I mean, you keep saying and you keep coming back to the fact that you're very political, um, but you went the academic route. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, there is this kind of unfortunate, I think, um, yeah. divide between the academic community and the policy community, with the academic community oftentimes having very little um, impact yeah. and influence on on policy. Um, so when when did you decide that you wanted to, you know, become an academic. How did that decision yeah. happen?
2: It didn't because when I was going through graduate school, I thought I probably wouldn't. I thought I would go either into government or a more likely a place like Rand, which was the main think tank. There weren't a lot of think tanks. And yet. that's
1: the place where academics and research people who really want to have a direct impact on government policy go, right? To to a place well, like Rand. Also,
2: but the best thing, Rand in the late 50s and early to mid 60s was the best IR department in the country. I mean, it wasn't an IR department in an academic. But the people there, you look at who was there, I mean, Alex George, Bernard Brody, the people who came out for the summers, Tom, you know, Tom Schelling, Bill Kaufman, who were interested in national security, the best thinking was being done at Rand. Uh, But a couple of things happened that changed that, both changed and changed. Me, I did have a summer at uh, the Hudson Institute, and I liked some of that. I liked dealing with Herman Kahn and Don Brennan and some of the others, but it was customer-driven, and I didn't find that as intellectually satisfying. And then as the 60s went on, Rand lost a lot of its independence. It became more tied mm-hmm. to uh, the Defense Department, not necessarily that it skewed what they were saying, but they didn't, weren't doing the same sort of path-breaking mm-hmm. intellectual work. And then when I wrote, started working dissertation in roughly starting 65, 66, then at, at Harvard in 67, uh, I got into what later became the logic of images in international relations about signaling and deception, and that just drew me in deeper and deeper. And that was the first sort of really academic work that had just totally gripped me. And I thought, hey, that—that's what I really, really like.
1: Uh, so, so let's talk about that. The the um... Logic of images because that that was your your first published book, right? Yes Yeah, um, would, would you just maybe briefly uh, describe for people who haven't read it? Um, and I yeah. you know, I, I I think I read an article uh, about it But it was in grad school several years ago So I'm struggling to uh to, to come up with the, the main arguments, yeah. but would you and just and kind I, of Not
2: glad to advertise
1: yeah. it because
2: Please. I still think it's one of my best books and people don't really understand it and Interestingly enough, it, it had very important implications from econ- into economics, not not as much in political science. The question was was initially working on perception: how do we tell whether states are aggressive or not? Right spiral model versus deterrence, but then led me to the obvious point: well, that's half the side, but also states are trying to project images sometimes. It's Those images are true. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're images of more powerful. Sometimes of being more belligerent than they are. Often it's in the 30s, Hitler making all these efforts to show how peaceful he was. So I said, you know, I should really look at that. How do states project images? And also, Irv Goffman, who was a brilliant sociologist then at Berkeley, where I was a graduate student, had written a book called Presentation of Self in Everyday Life, about how individuals project image What now that's known as impression management. Um, and also, I'd always, from the beginning of when Tom Schelling's book started coming out, and,
1: you know, in a 60, Is it arms and influence you're, you're referring to? Uh, no,
2: uh, the first one, strategy of conflict. Okay. Arms and influence, got to tell a story about that, you know I mean? It comes later, but same sort of thing. And I saw those two strands as coming together on how states m- tried to manipulate the images others had for their own good reasons. Now, sometimes it would be for greater cooperation and peace. It's not necessarily malign. And then that led to the basic question: and as a per- perceiver, what is the value of various kinds of information you're getting from the other side? Uh, why should I as a what as I should I as a perceiver pay attention to? And the obvious thing is, well, we pay attention to deeds, not words. But this isn't true. There are a lot of deeds that can be deceptive, and a lot of words are true. And if words had no meaning, People wouldn't talk. You, know, you wouldn't have diplomatic conversations if words were meaningless. The fact that there's so much diplomacy indicates it has some value. So instead of words and deeds, I talked about signals and indices. And indices are actions. They can be verbal actions uh, as well as with the deeds and symbol, symbolic actions. Uh, v- that are believed to be somehow samples of the behavior of concern or to be inextricably linked to the characteristic that you think will predict the other side. Could
1: could you maybe use a more contemporary yeah. example to describe the, the processes that you're talking about? Yeah.
2: Well if we see, for instance, um, the, the Russian military intervention in Syria, it's not unambiguous. But we can say, well, that is a sort of move that tells me something about Russia, because only to use contemporary terms, Russia of a certain type would ha- would take that behavior that uh it may not mean that Russia is going to invade the Baltic republics, but it says something about, a Russian risk-taking propensities mm-hmm. and uh, willingness to in- pay certain costs. Go back to Vietnam, that it was argued, some validity, that the willingness of America, or at least the American leaders, to uh, have... To pay such a price and to see so many American soldiers killed conveyed a credible message of American willingness to fight for Berlin because Russia would say the American behavior in Vietnam is an index to the sort of characteristics that it has, an index to the kind of player in the world that it is. Mm
1: Could no. you say, I mean, that that um, the Bush administration's decision to invade uh, Iraq, you know, conveyed that they were willing yep. to do this kind of crazy and, and reckless thing yes. uh, to, you know, scare other countries in the region, maybe like Libya to give up their nuclear weapons, which they did, or um, to have that kind of neocon fantasy of um, the, you know, the, the sort of ever-changing regimes throughout the Middle East based on this, you know, fear that they may be next?
2: I think it, and I think it had widespread... Consequences, some good, you know, many bad. I think, I think, uh, the it did have a role, significant role. Exactly how large, never going to tell. But yes, significant role in uh, uh, convincing Qaddafi to come in from the cold, although he ended up uh, dead, which he didn't expect. But uh, and that is different from what I called signals. Signals are statements or action which gain their meaning through implicit or explicit agreement among the participants. The fact, uh, and that's true for language, you know, the meaning of words is, is by and large arbitrary and they carry meaning because we've agreed as to what they mean. And so I played with the distinction between signals and indices as ways in which states projected images In different ways, and then how either could be used for deception and how they were judged. Um,
1: So, how um, controversial in academic circles at the time was this idea of applying principles of psychology and social psychology to international relations? Like, how were you received by your colleagues?
2: Well, this I want to stress before I answer that this the signaling is really almost completely non psychological. Mm -hmm. It is really. It was what I call a you know, premature social constructivism, because there wasn't such a thing then. But it really was partly constructivist for saying people are constructing the meaning. And it was premature rational choice, because rational choice hadn't entered political science, because I worked out a somewhat rigorous and really fairly deductive approach to this. And it had its influence because I was working with Tom Schelling, and so was Michael Spence, who's in graduate student in economics and Mike read the manuscript and thought it was very interesting, but for his purposes should be done differently. And he then did his work on labor market screening and costly signaling that led to the enormous work led to a Nobel prize for him. Alas, not for me, but uh, his Nobel (laughs) prize, not yet, not yet. And all the work in mostly in economics on signaling and that work actually came back into political science, although I think the way it's done, political science often is quite simple-minded. And I have an article critiquing it, but that isn't the psychology. But when I did the political psychology, which is indeed the the misperception book for which I'm better known, um, it it was marginal, but uh, still had some place because uh, when it came out which is the uh, in 76 that there was still much more work in psychology it goes back to 1930s and 40s political psychology especially but not only freudian psychology was really a, a, a central pillar of political science that was not true by the 1970 but a lot of the people active still had been either trained in that or at least knew it and didn't think it was odd. And also there was a strong field of political psychology in American politics, what was called political behavior, really political attitudes. So it was considered, I think, a little odd or odd enough to be considered original, Uh, not quite in the mainstream, but still at least uh, not a total renegade.
1: Oh, so what was your, your you said there's a story about arms and influence in Thomas Schelling. Oh,
2: yes, yes. And about the interaction of this and government. I was stunned. I learned this from my good friend, Mark Trachtenberg, who started as a historian that moved into political science departments, but Mark's work always combined the two. He was doing work in the archives about American defense policy in the mid 60s, uh, 1962, And he found in the early fall of 62, a report from a committee, which Tom was the chair, about partly nuclear weapons, even without the Soviet Union, what happened beyond that and nuclear policy looking ahead 10 years. And that book really is the draft of Arms and Influence. I mean, it's a committee so it has lots of the committee that that shelling was on was chaired okay. and you read the first three sentences and you know it's tom i mean if you, you he has a very distinct writing style so you can tell this isn't a committee they've endorsed it but it's tom and uh it it has some things that are not in arms and influence and arms and influence has some things that aren't it but you know, that it, it is a draft for the government and uh, it was commissioned by Mac Bundy, who knew, of course, shelling from Harvard. And Bundy was then Kennedy's national security advisor. And it can be taken very seriously. And they were having a group, including the people on the committee and Bundy and others, uh, to go out to Camp David and spend a weekend or more talking about these things. Uh, it turned out that was the time the Cuban Missile Crisis broke. And I don't think they ever had the meeting.
1: But, uh, but that's—I mean—that's a great story about the the application of you know theory to to policy. Um. It, so fast forward into to perception and and misperception uh, in international politics. Your your second book and and you know the one that you're probably most famous for. Yeah. Um. I mean, you said the kernel of that idea came when you were just a child. Um. Yeah. But uh, did you, after having written that book and and having it out there in the world, see any sort of direct policy? implications from having written it or consequences
2: well a couple of things i, I did it made me see the world differently i mean it's before i started i was not really deeply attuned to the cognitive shortcuts people use i'd of course read the work of simon and, and a little less relevant but so partly of ed lindenblom about in effect what we now call heuristics and biases—the term coming out of the later work by Tversky and Kahneman—that I also drew on and feel is very valuable—I sort of knew, but you know, it was not deeply embedded. Writing that book and seeing the large number of cognitive, well, of times when people went wrong, something increases humility. It led me to be much more aware of the common misperceptions and when I, I I, hope I'm able to avoid some of those pitfalls myself. And it led me also to see how that was relevant for policy making. And the book was read not by policymakers, but read by people who were in or were going into intelligence agencies, especially CIA. And then what happened in the late 70s or really I guess right you know soon after the book was published uh, Bob Bowie was who'd been the director of the Center for International Affairs at Harvard so been there when when I was an assistant professor at Harvard was in a went in as a, a deputy director of CIA for intelligence analysis and so he asked me to become a consultant to CIA because he was familiar with my work uh, partly on deception, but more on the misperception. And so I was able to then, and in many years later work with people who doing intelligence analysis on, Hey, how do you not always get it right? We're never going to get it right, Mm -hmm. but how do we build in some uh, checks on, Common misperceptions.
1: So, if it's declassified by now, if you're allowed to talk about it, like what sort of of issues were you working on then in the late '70s uh, in the CIA? Like, what were the the big you know things that they were coming to you with?
2: Well, there were two things. I did some work on Soviet intentions, which was the big political issue. You know, detente, at this point, was falling apart. Soviets also were building up missile forces. Uh, this was the time of the so-called B report in, in 1976. Will you the,
1: explain that for people who aren't familiar? Oh, sorry. Yeah,
2: There's a big debate in the late 50s about whether the Soviets thought they could fight and win a nuclear war. CIA and the, by and large said no. Then uh, a lot of the conservatives felt no, the CIA is much too complacent. You know, political pressure and intellectual pressure, legitimate pressure, to re-examine these estimates. And so under George Bush as head of the director of central intelligence, they set up, in effect, a red teaming exercise within CIA. It was known as Team B uh, to, to do the alternative to the so-called Team A, which was the regular analysis. And Team B was led by Richard Pipes, a very distinguished historian of Russia and the early years of the Soviet Union. And uh, they have the study was highly classified, but really the guts of it were not classified. And Pipes published in commentary an article, why the Soviet Union Thinks It Can Fight and Win a Nuclear War. A very important article, which I think history and declassified documents on the Soviet side has shown is pretty clearly wrong in most not all, most of its things. So I was working on that, but then the uh, Iran blew up. And Bob Bowie, who was a head of intelligence, had just testified to Congress that Iran was now pretty stable. So he wanted to know what went wrong. Mm-hmm. So he had me do a post-mortem on Iran, and that's published in my book, Why Intelligence Fails. And what's interesting is what I found, I believe, to have been the pathologies partly were psychological, but it was also institutional and sociological about the culture of the CIA and what we now call the intelligence community, excessively focused on a current intelligence and summarizing the cables from the field and insufficiently analytical And then later, again, this is also in the book, the other big study I did much later was after the Iraq war, we found Iraq, whoops, didn't have active Mm -hmm. WMD programs. And I volunteered to lead a team to do an analysis of that, the analysis itself, part of what we recommended is still confidential, but the intellectual and at, uh, arguments on why we were wrong and why the standard arguments for why we were wrong are themselves wrong, that's well, also published it, it, in the
1: book. I mean, it, 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 will you explain that a, a little bit? Because this uh, on 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 both cases, let maybe start with with Iraq, because I mean yeah. this this idea that. Um, you know, uh, that uh, Saddam Hussein, uh, who did not end up having weapons of mass destruction, yeah. would um, basically like commit suicide, commit regime suicide. Yes. It's um, yes. something that's totally in, an anathema oh. to traditional IR you know, theory, right? So why, yeah, so so crazy. what happened? Yeah.
2: Well, there are two, uh, three important lessons from this, for lessons for social science, lessons for the government, I think lessons for everyday life. One is that, Empathy is terribly hard. We now pretty much know what Saddam was thinking. That's a slight exaggeration. But through various studies, one done by Charlie Delfer for the government, mm-hmm. Kevin Woods and his colleagues, based on a lot of the other material.
1: And basically, he was thinking that, that you know he wanted to maintain this perception that he had it in order to deter like Iran or deter yes, Shiites he was, from rising up. Um, he so was, he was willing to let the U.S. invade.
2: He didn't think we were coming to get him, Yes. He was more worried about Iran and as his first enemy, the Shia, the second enemy. uh, We're probably four or five on his list. Uh, So he doesn't believe we're really gonna invade him. And even when we start, he doesn't. He could have blown the dams, flooded the rivers, made our invasion much slower and more difficult. He doesn't do it because we're not coming to Baghdad. So this, right, this is crazy. Mm -hmm. If I were to erase your memory and to give you two piles, one is the official intelligence at the time, and the other are these reports that we now have, and ask which is right, just given from what you know about the world, you're going to pick the official intelligence every time. You're going to say these later reports that we think are now right. This is going to make a great movie, but it's a comedy. You know, we don't believe that. Mm -hmm. So I think. Couple of big lessons, you know. There's a lot of things out there in the world that are really bizarre, and empathizing with people who are bizarre and who are doing things that will lead to their death—that's very hard. So, my colleague Dick Betts puts it, when you have things that are important ex- exceptions to important social science generalizations, intelligence and common sense are likely to get them wrong. Mm -hmm. And that's partly why we got this It made every perfectly sensible that he would actually have active WMD programs and totally unsensible that he wouldn't have them, but would leave us in doubt about
1: this and it kind of gets back to this this idea of bounded rationality right yeah that um you know the 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 set of assumptions that saddam is working on are not the same set of assumptions that george bush or, or the u.s policymakers are working on and therefore that could lead to you know what you call like misperceptions and and which leads to you know wars that might not have been necessary
2: but it's even worse in this case because in some times like for before world war, before Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, they had a worldview that we didn't fully understand. But if I explained it, it's then pretty intelligible about why they felt they were painted into a corner. But with Saddam, even when you explain it, you've got to say, really? How could he believe that? How could he think that he was deterring Iran by pretending to have programs that weren't going to yield anything for another five or 10 years. That doesn't deter. So, I mean, even when I understand what I think are his assumptions, I'm really deeply puzzled by them. So it's very hard for intelligence
1: Maybe there's com- like insanity in international relations, yeah. the, 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 you know, like have uh, sort of abnormal social and, and psychological behavior as uh, the next study of of, of IR theory. Yeah,
2: and and I, I don't mean that Bush is like Saddam, but the terrible deficit in post-war planning uh, in Iraq. No one could believe that because, I mean, great powers don't behave that irresponsibly. I'm well, d- he did. But who would be, who would have believed that? There are a lot of things that go on in the world that you know just defy common sense and our theories, and that's that's deeply troublesome.
1: Do you do you think that um, policymakers in the United States are getting any better at understanding um, misperception in international relations, like? Is yeah. this this what you describe? I don't see as as a principal lesson being drawn yeah. uh, from the uh, Iraq fiasco. Um, see, yeah. But how do you see um, how do you see both the, maybe the intelligence community, which probably you're a little closer to, yes. uh, and the the policy making community more broadly drawing from from these lessons about about uh, misperception.
2: Well, it may be, of course, a conceit of academics that academics do it better. But I think the IC has gotten
1: better. IC being the intelligence community.
2: But, yeah, the intelligence. But partly they're, I'm not the only one who's worked with them. And, you know, those people are more amenable to, I think, seeing mistakes and to being much more self-conscious about the links between evidence and inference, because a lot of what they did and a lot of the reasons for their overconfidence on Iraq, you know they made what I call methodological errors and and they now place much more stress on methodology uh not the key to everything, but I think it makes them i think there are real improvements there. I think it's true in the mid level policy making community, the deputy assistant secretaries the NSE country directors, most of whom have an MA, if not a PhD in the social science. The higher levels, I'm not sure. It's really hard. You know, they're ta- the pressures on them for time are so great. They can hardly be thoughtful. Uh, are they I'd like to think that though they're getting better staff support and more sophisticated. But I wouldn't be sure of that. Go back historically, read uh, the memo written by a, in fact, the, the top British diplomat in the early part of the 20th century, uh, Sir I, Iyer Crow. It's a memo on German intentions written in January to uh, 1907 that says Germany is really aggressive. Now, we can debate whether he was right or wrong, but it is an enormously sophisticated essay. About the world and implicitly the methodology he uses the way he establishes his propositions and links them to evidence is enormously sophisticated. So uh, I don't want to say we're necessary there's complete unil- unilinear progress, but I do think the run of the mill, analysis at least related to an uh, understanding of potential adversaries is a bit better
1: um so we're, we're just about out of time but before i let you go i did want to ask uh what you're working on now any anything we should look out for in the future yeah. in the near future
2: i'm i'm thinking a lot about iran about syria and i've worked on some negotiations with iran on the basic question of how you deal with troublesome actors and avoiding spirals. What I'm writing now is a new introduction to perception and misperception. I'm not going to rewrite the book. It would just take more more years than I have left. But I'm doing, uh, there'll be a very, very long forward that will talk about where my thinking has progressed in what will be the you know, 40 years since so- I... Wrote the book and where the new psychology
1: is going. Can you give us a, a tease of of how yeah. you might approach, say, ISIS in this in this oh, formulation? ISIS.
2: Oh, I'd rather not approach ISIS. Uh, very hard to understand. Uh, I would say a little related to ISIS, but the thing I'm stressing in the foreword is that, uh, um, and linked to what we've been talking about, the role of emotions in. Politics and indeed general life is much greater than I gave in perception, which was, if you will, purely cognitive. That mm. uh, emotions are very powerful, and they color the way we look at the world and uh, the way we s- design policies. I'm not saying uh, that people are emotional in a bad sense, just but the emotional and the cognitive are so interwoven that we just have to understand that and deal with it better
1: uh well robert thank you so much for your time for speaking with me and uh, you know for for increasing my own and, and i think a lot of my listeners understanding of how the world works
2: glad to do it
0: all right well thank you all for listening to this conversation with robert jervis who died on december 9th 2021 at the age of 81 His work was deeply impactful to me, how I understand the world. I know it has been deeply impactful to many people who listen to this show. And I hope you uh, enjoyed this conversation and take some comfort in it. If you want to access more of these kinds of long-form interviews with scholars and journalists and diplomats and others who have led interesting careers in foreign policy and world affairs, you can become a premium subscriber by going to patreon.com slash global dispatches. And there are about a couple hundred of these interviews that I have in the archive. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye.